Another edition of the ISO Podcast. My name is Eric Ruby. Joining me as always, Carson Breber. If you want to follow us on social media, you can follow him at at Carsobi, myself at at EricRuby underscore. And as always, a like, a follow, a subscription, a five-star rating is always appreciated. Let's talk about Jimmy Butler, Carson. I don't want to dance around it. I want to get straight to the point just like Jimmy Butler would. We need to talk about the greatness that was his 40-point triple-double that led the Heat to a Game 3 victory, putting just a little bit spark of life. It was an otherwise dead series up to that point. Miami with a 115-104 victory. Butler, like I said, 40 points, 13 assists, 11 rebounds, quite literally one of the greatest finals performances we have ever witnessed in NBA history, not bubble history, NBA history. What do you take away from it, Carson? What does this mean for the Heat, for Jimmy Butler, for the Lakers, the series in general? What does this historic performance mean historically? Well, I think what is most important is what you just said. This is an actually historically significant performance because this team looked dead in the water. Very rarely in NBA history has a team been missing two of their three best players to begin with, much less being an overwhelming underdog in that series, and then somehow come out with this miraculous win. And when you're talking about one-man show, incredible performances, where this great underdog comes out with a win, the one in the 21st century that I think is... Comparable to this is AI getting 48 against the Shaq Kobe Lakers and winning game one of that series. I think last year in in the finals, we had Steph go for 47, but it was in a blowout loss. And this to me is without compare in recent basketball memory in how Jimmy single-handedly dominated this game when they needed him most. And Jimmy Butler does not fit the profile of a guy who is the best player on a finals team. He's probably not a top 10 player in basketball. And Just by the nature of how he plays, sometimes he defers. He's such an all-around great player that he doesn't necessarily dominate every night. He didn't score 20 a game in the regular season. He's content to be the third option if Hero's going or if Dragic is going. And what was so incredible is, it wasn't just how assertive he was as a scorer. Getting to the line time and time again, which is his greatest strength in that respect. Punishing dudes out of the post. Navigating the mid-range beautifully and masterfully as he does when he's at his best. He was also dominating in how he set up others because he's always that great facilitator out of the pick and roll, has all these weapons around him, but he was making remarkable reads. He was sucking in the defense and he was just so aware at all times. And so if he wasn't scoring, he was dominating, but for the most part, he was scoring and looking forward in this series, obviously I'm not going to go out there and say that the Heat are suddenly this kind of team that can challenge them, but I think particularly if Bam Adebayo misses a couple more games, the silver lining here is no Bam clogging up the paint means Jimmy is free to roam down there. He is free to attack time and time again. He can post up. We haven't seen him able to do that. So yes, he lost his buddy out of the pick and roll and obviously his co-star on this team, but he gained an option there as far as how easily he can dominate within the flow of a game. You read my mind, Carson, because what I was going to bring up as my very first point was how replacing Bam Adebayo with a Kelly Olynyk with a Myers Leonard 
opened up a four-out, one-in offense for the Miami Heat where Butler could drive, and Anthony Davis was on the perimeter having to make a decision whether to help off of somebody who is lethal from three who can knock down those shots like Myers Leonard, like a Kelly Olynyk, instead of a Bam Adebayo who is undeniably a better player than those guys that I just said. However, stylistically, we might have just found a way for Miami to beat the Lakers that they couldn't do before. The Lakers are so large, and Anthony Davis is such an incredible defensive presence that having the ability to make him stick on the three-point line by having your bigs just stand out there and not really be involved in the offense as much as somebody like Bam would be gives whoever's driving free reign to kind of do what they want. And it takes a special player to take advantage of that. It takes a special player to take advantage of that in the finals, and that's what Jimmy Butler did. You said he's not a top 10 player in basketball. I'm not sure if I agree or disagree yet. I really have to sit down with these top 10 lists and like write them out because it is fluctuating so much. But he might be a top 10 guy that I want on my team in the finals, and isn't that not how we should judge players like maybe I don't want Jimmy Butler to win 60 games in a regular season but if I need the best player to win me a championship right now Jimmy Butler is on that top 10 and might be higher than that with the performance that we saw from him and it was honestly just amazing to see him bring this sort of life into it very Iverson-esque it's like he maybe took the uh the attitude of the 04 Pistons and just put it into one person and compressed it and made a player and out came Jimmy Butler. And it was incredible. So my question to you is, Bam Adebayo is questionable for game four. And before we break down the whole series, I just want to know, if you are Eric Spolstra and Bam Adebayo comes back, do you maybe stagger minutes with Jimmy and Bam? And whenever Jimmy gets a rest, Bam plays. Not that they can never play together, but maybe try to maximize the amount of three-point shooting when Butler is on the court? Or is it just we're running Bam the same way that we did it before? Because now you kind of have a question if you're Spolstra. Yeah. I think that it's an interesting decision. For the most part, I think you still play those two together because they are so dynamic out of the pick and roll. At the same time, AD, only in the 21 minutes that we saw Bam in Game 1, looked like he was able to neutralize Bam a bit just because as a lob threat, now you have a guy who is as dynamic athletically, can challenge him vertically, and so you take that away. I still think, though, off the short roll, Bam is one of the best decision makers in basketball as far as setting up others and finding those shooters around him, but maybe we see them incorporate a little bit more of the pick and pop, and I don't mean you take Bam out to the three-point line because he's not an established threat out there, but... We have seen him evolve throughout these playoffs and knock down those mid-range jumpers a little more frequently, and then you're still taking AD out of the equation as far as he can no longer help and affect Jimmy in that way, because if Jimmy is going like he was in this game, and obviously he's not going to shoot 14 for 20 on a lot of difficult shots every time out there, but there is no one-on-one -on -one answer for Jimmy Butler on this Lakers roster. They have some quality perimeter defenders, nobody who can hang with the 6'7", 230, bruising, foul-drawing machine that is Jimmy, unless you're going to put LeBron James on him for most of the game, which is not the kind of matchup that they are going to lean into. So, I don't know if it's necessarily taking away from Bam that much, but I do think that if we don't see Olenek and Leonard play at least a decent bit, we are losing out on some offensive potency from this team, and some variety because maybe if they're playing bam heavy minutes and it's not working offensively then maybe you do switch out and put one of those guys in for a stretch because as great as bam is defensively 
Sometimes when you're looking at AD, just throwing a big physical body on him is good enough, and you have that in either, in either Leonard or Olenek. So I think that Bam is still the kind of guy who is obviously an incredible impact player as far as all-around versatility is probably unmatched as far as big men in basketball right now on both ends. But I do think we've seen that his value has diminished a little bit in this series just because he's so outclassed by AD on both ends. Yeah, it, it is a little bit unfortunate for Bam uh, to run into somebody like AD who defensively and offensively is kind of like a perfect matchup for him. There's not many people who can contain Bam defensively. AD can do his best to do that. And the other way around, not many people that Bam cannot contain defensively. And AD can be the type of person to get a bucket whenever he wants. And I look at Eric Spolster now, and I think back to a conversation that we had at one point where we were talking about coaches making necessary adjustments or obvious adjustments, and I just said, we can't take that for granted because not every coach would do that. Well, now it's Eric Spolster's chance to do that because... You also look at guys like Myers Leonard and Kelly Olynyk, and these are not bums who have never played a minute of playoff basketball in their life. Every team that Kelly Olynyk has been on, he's made some sort of impact in the playoffs. Some of that has been kind of dirty when he was on the Celtics and he dislocated a couple shoulders, but he still has had an impact on every playoff team he's been on. A year ago, Myers Leonard was putting up numbers in the playoffs for Portland. So yeah. these are two guys that have been kind of bided their time, they waited, and they're ready to go and make an impact. Same with Kendrick Nunn, who steps in for the injured Goran Dragic, and that was my big thing when everybody was talking about the Heat being completely over with Bam and Goran out of there. Look, I agree, it, it makes it tougher 100%, but you didn't have, like, rookies stepping into there. Like, if you were the Celtics, it's not like you had Romeo Langford stepping in. Like, you had second place in Rookie of the Year, first team all-rookie Kendrick Nunn, who started most of your games this season. And Myers Leonard, who started games. Kelly Olenek, who played basically every game this regular season. You have so many guys, and that's the crazy thing about this Heat team, that can go out and at least play and know what they're doing and they aren't a liability. And that's huge because that's not everybody on the Lakers right now because there have been some Lakers players that have been liabilities. Well, Eric, we are reading each other's minds here today because when you talk about guys making the obvious decisions... I think that we need to see more Kendrick Nunn minutes because through three games, he is a plus two plus minus wise, which is impressive. And in game one, it really wasn't significant minutes, but he was the Heat's second leading scorer for much of this season. Not to mention that he is a dogged competitor defensively and is the kind of shot maker who resembles Drogic certainly more than Tyler Hero or anyone else on this roster because he's that kind of fluid, natural, change in pace shot maker. He's a, a nifty lefty who is just a fantastic shot maker off the dribble. And we've seen Hero now forced into this role where he's not comfortable because he's not quite at that level creating for himself off the dribble yet. He's been really inefficient. He's forced the issue. And I feel like it's disrupting his flow in all facets of the game because he's not shooting particularly well, even if he is open right now. So I do think that Kendrick Nunn should continue to be an X-factor in this series because the Heat got out of Game 3 with another poor performance from Duncan Robinson, another really inefficient shooting night from Tyler Hero, and they did so because Jimmy Butler was heroic. And that's okay. It's not necessarily sustainable, though, that he's going to get a 40-point triple-double. And if someone is going to step up to supplement that closing stretch scoring ability, what Goran Dragic was for them as their scoring leader through two rounds of these playoffs. And as the kind of guy who, when Jimmy was just going to go out there and score 13, Dragic could get you 30. To me, none more closely resembles that guy than Hero. 
And he also has that two-way ability because even though he's not physically imposing, he's a dog. He's a signature Miami Heat guy in that respect. Am I crazy for saying that none could really continue to play even more important minutes throughout this series and he's the kind of guy who deserves to be out there in crunch time potentially with Dragic out? I think that he is definitely somebody who's earned his keep with the Miami Heat. And whatever that means for Eric Spolstra, I trust him. And Tyler Hero... I don't hate him closing because he didn't shoot well from the field in Game 3. However, he did have uh, some buckets to close the game out. And he that's where he had that kind of infamous snarl that Lakers fans got so upset about along with Jimmy Butler saying that LeBron is in trouble now. Just good fun in the finals that I'm happy we at least have these conversations instead of saying, oh well, it was a fun bubble while it lasted. So I don't think you're crazy. I think Kendrick Nunn is somebody who... Unfortunately, he's kind of the uh, uh, victim of circumstance because he got coronavirus over the break that probably affected the way that he played his conditioning, things like that. You come back into the bubble, Goran Dragic starts taking over. You obviously can't take him out of the lineup. You have a, a system that's working so well. You lose one game going into the conference finals and you win <laughs> the conference finals. So it's hard to switch that up. But of course, Goran going out, I think Kendrick Nunn is the perfect person to step in. And we'll see him step in, and it's up to him to deliver. And I think that there's been so much talk about Eric Spolstra, deservedly so, being the best coach in the league, one of the best coaches in the league, one of the best NBA coaches of all time. This next game, for me, is the true test. Not that, no no matter what happens, he's still a good coach, but there are so many things that you learned from last game that you can implement in this one, but they're going to be a little bit risky. Like we said before, relying on Olenek, relying on Leonard, and guys like Kendrick Nunn who haven't been in the rotation for a long time. But again, But if we look at the Heat, they seem to be the most ready organization for that. So I'm happy that these guys are at least able to step up and fit into their roles, but at the end of the day, it also took a Jimmy Butler historic triple-double to put them over the edge. So let's take a little bit of a step back here. It's fun to talk about the Heat's one win, and it's fun to talk about this not being a sweep and that this could actually be a series. But we need to take a legitimate look at this because if we go back to Game 1 and Game 2, the Lakers looked unstoppable. We were rightfully so talking about a sweep. And personally, I can't let one game change that, especially when we don't know if Bam or Drajic are going to be back this series. So... Let's look at these last two games and compare them to Game 3. What can you take from both? What do the Lakers need to bring back from Games 1 and 2? And what do they need to stop from Game 3? Well, I think that one of the most significant things is the Lakers have been shooting an incredibly high volume of threes by their standards, taking over 42 a game, which is pretty insane because... Didn't they set the record? Attempts. They set the record for they single game three-point field goal attempts. They did, which is ridiculous for a team whose quote-unquote sharpshooters are Rajon Rondo and Alex Caruso and KCP and Danny Green. These guys who historically, especially if you look at a guy like Rondo, are hot, as cold, hot and cold as they come and sometimes just flat out bad, although Rondo has been pretty consistent throughout these playoffs. And when we look at game one, it was portrayed as this blowout and oh my god, look at how unstoppable the Lakers are. But the Heat completely entered that game with the right approach. They were doubling and trapping LeBron and forcing the guys around him to beat you. And if you're doing that, if you're saying, okay, well, if the Lakers are going to shoot 11 of 17 from three, 65% in the first half, then yeah, we're probably not going to do very well. And that's exactly what happened. So that to me was almost a fluky outcome. And then 
Game two, it just felt like the Heat never really established themselves as a threat, which is really hard to do. It was a deflating situation, and I think we saw Hero continued to struggle and wasn't quite able to assert himself as that scorer. So game three, it sort of all came together on both ends because AD was not exceptional for the first time in a while. He's been so consistently fantastic, and he was kind of a no-show in game three. The Lakers shooting cooled down, as you would expect, to where they only shot... 33% from deep, and then we had this supernova performance from Jimmy Butler. So I think that obviously game three is not necessarily replicable every single time out because Jimmy is not going to play one of the greatest games of his career and in finals history every time out. But I do think that there have been things they've done throughout this series, like for the most part, taking the ball out of LeBron's hands. Because if you look at his stats this series, 28, 10, and 9, that's fantastic, obviously, and he's the best player in the world. And I'm not going to say it's that those so aren't funny legitimate. to hear. To hear, I, I know that what's going to come out of your mouth isn't like an extremely positive thing, which is fair. But at the same time, hearing that stat line and then going into something like that, it, to me, it, I never get used to it. But sorry, I digress. I digress. Of course, it's because he's unstoppable. But if you look at Game One. It didn't feel like he actually had 25 points. He had nine points at halftime, and that was a tremendous victory for the Heat, and he got going a little bit more, but my point is they were able to take him away as that overwhelming score, and in game three, when he only had, I believe, 25 again, he wasn't the he wasn't in the mode where, okay, I'm going to score 15 in this fourth quarter, and I'm just going to will us to a win, and of course, he's fantastic as a distributor, but if Rajon Rondo is the one facilitating, and if Caruso is taking these open shots, and if LeBron is settling for a pull-up three with four minutes to go in a comeback effort, I am thrilled with that if I'm the Heat, so now I think we see does LeBron flip that switch to where he just dominates them, because to this point, despite being down 2-1, despite LeBron having those shiny numbers, I feel like the Heat have kind of gotten what they want out of that the supporting cast has just been better than you would have expected right I want to run through some numbers like you said AD not his most dominant usual sense self definitely the worst game he's had of this playoffs maybe of the bubble and maybe of the season 15 points five turnovers four personal fouls three assists five rebounds on the night not a great night. He only took nine shots, shot six of nine from the field, but it was a negative 26 overall. LeBron, 25, 10, and nine, like you said. But where the Lakers found themselves only down 11, the reason why they didn't get absolutely blown out was the incredible bench production that they had. I believe this might have been the highest scoring bench production in NBA Finals history. I'm not 100% sure, but if it's not number one, it's close. Kyle Kuzma, 19 points plus six on the night. Markeith Morris, 19 points plus 10 on the night. Four points from Rondo, three points from J.R. Smith and a really weird contested fadeaway three, and eight points for Alex Caruso. Those are all guys who came off the bench. The starters, Howard Green and Caldwell, combined for 11 points. So that is something that if the Lakers can maintain their bench production and have guys like Danny Green, guys like Contavious Caldwell-Pope hit their threes and not be a negative 26 and a negative 15 on the night respectively, you're going to be in a lot better of a situation. And like you said, AD wasn't his normal self. LeBron, despite the numbers, has not been totally dominant. So if I'm the Lakers, and it's what they've said here, they're still confident. Like, they're ready to go. I think that they kind of took this loss, I don't want to say as a wake-up call, but almost as like a, oh, okay, so you guys are trying. We're going to really go out here and put an end to this. So looking forward to next game, 
I'm interested to see if LeBron does take over, if Anthony Davis does take over, which one of them does, because if AD doesn't have a takeover game, I think his chances for finals MVP are kind of going down. At the beginning of the series, he was the favorite in my opinion, but after last night's game or the other night's game, only 15 points, you can't give the finals MVP to that guy. Uh... A big key for the Heat, and part of the reason why Davis did struggle was they switched away from their zone. So, how much zone do you think we're going to see in Game 4? Are you going to see any? Are we going to see some? Or is it going to be just completely gone? Well, first of all, I think that part of the reason we've seen the decrease in zone is it's so much harder to execute at a high level without Bam out there because he is so capable in getting out to the perimeter, is also such a weapon in being able to send that help over at any time because what they really try to do with that zone is deny favorable one-on-one matchups because they have long-armed guys in your area at all times, and if you are going to attack, it's going to have to be from the baseline, and you're going to meet Bam out of bio there. That doesn't work quite as well when it's Myers Leonard or Kelly Olynyk down there. So I think that we might see increasingly less zone unless Bam comes back. If Bam comes back, though, I wouldn't be shocked if they bring it back a little bit just because, again, it's easy to send doubles at LeBron that way, and... Of course, people always say shooting beats a zone, and that is always true, but I would rather have the Lakers shooting beat me than LeBron James, and that is always going to be my point. So what I'm fascinated by is, does he go out there and try to score 40? Because obviously you don't want him to force the issue. That's not who he is inherently as a player, but at the same time, if the guys around him shoot 25% from three, they will lose almost no matter what happens. And even though this was a strange game from AD and you can't overstate how much foul trouble plays into all of this because a lot like what we saw from Nicole Jokic in the previous series, guys just become more tentative. They aren't as willing to go downhill and the entire flow of a game changes when you get those quick three or four fouls. So I do think that the zone is probably not going to be implemented as much without Bam, but if Bam comes back, it is a way to challenge the rest of this team to beat them because they know what they're going to get from LeBron and AD for the most part, but Rondo is turbulent and sometimes he thinks he's the best player on the floor and he's not going to give the ball up and he's going to shoot a step back three or at the very least an open three and if you put them in the position where that's their offense if you lose to that what are you going to do you're the heat going up against this gargantuan Lakers squad it's certainly better than losing to LeBron getting 40 every night at least in my eyes. Right. I mean, whenever you play LeBron, there's no winning. You might win the game but you can never really win if you play LeBron in a series. You have to let him distribute. You have to let him make the rest of his teammates win the game. It's exactly like you said. And Bam Adebayo upgraded to questionable for Game 4. He could return. We're not 100% sure. Drogic seems like he's completely out. Whenever you have something that's torn, that's not a short-term thing, especially for a guy like Drogic, who is pretty late in his career, probably later than most people realize because he's just been flying under the radar uh, for a couple years. Uh, you, You really can't risk that. So... I'm not sure we're going to see him, but I would say we see Bam before the end of the series. So I'm going to ask you to be a betting man for for a second, okay? Over under, I'll give you a couple of these. I just want you to give you your your instant reactions. Over under, Bam Adebayo playing two more games this series. It's tough because I don't have that intimate medical knowledge. I'm going to go under, though, just because... I'm not sure this series goes more than two more games. Over under 35 points for LeBron James in game four. That's a great question. I'm going to go under because I think that 
And again, maybe he has that shift in mentality where it's just, okay, I'm the best player on the planet and I'm going to utterly dominate this game. But we haven't seen that switch flip from him consistently, and I'm not sure if it happens in Game 4, because it's going to be hard for him to assert himself as a scorer. We can criticize him for not doing it. Part of that is, stylistically, going up against this great combination of wings who are willing to double and trap him at all times, it's hard to get 35. Are you going over or under on that? I I think I'm going to stick under 2, but I don't know if it's less of, like... I think he has the ability to do it, but I think part of the reason why he got AD, why he wanted AD, was so he didn't have to do it. LeBron looked tired in Game 3. He did. At the fourth quarter, he had to guard, he had to guard Butler a lot of the game. AD was not producing. So much was on him, and he looked tired. So going into this game, I mean, if AD's not producing, I, I hope he scores over 35 because they'll need him to if AD scores 15 again. When you make that point about AD, I think you're absolutely right. But why didn't he assert himself as that dominant force in Game 3 when AD finally didn't show up? Because that's his moment. And the Lakers kind of coasted like this wasn't this huge game, but they could have put this thing away for good. And LeBron is well aware of how significant momentum changes in these series can be. He's been the beneficiary of it twice throughout his career. So I think that you're absolutely right. My point is just he should have done it last game when AD clearly wasn't establishing himself as that force. I think it's so easy when we talk about LeBron to just say, well, you should have done, you should have done. And to me, I give credit to the Heat for that. Like you said, it's not an easy thing to go against this Heat and just score at will. And look, Asking LeBron James to score 35 at will is almost just a testament to his greatness because we don't demand that of literally any other player, any other player. Of course, though, because he's so much better than everyone else. Right, but what what I'm saying is he's still so much better than everybody else that he dropped almost a 25-point triple-double against, again, this Miami Heat defense, which is incredible. And... I think that it's, you know, it's okay to demand that of him, but we also need to keep perspective with it as well. And I don't think he gets over 35, but I think that he gets close to a triple-double. So my last uh, betting question for you, it's a simple yes or no, and it's a long-term thing, or it could be. Will anybody ever out-rebound, out-assist, and outscore LeBron James in a single finals game Again in NBA history, because that happened for the first time ever with this Jimmy Butler historic performance. Will that ever happen again? It's a fantastic question. I'm going to lean no, because if you just look at the probabilities, LeBron's probably only going to play in maybe one more finals after this, and it could be more than that. Who knows? I'm not going to write the guy off, but it's not going to be 50-plus finals games like he had already played up to this point in his career, and that's the thing with LeBron. Even if it doesn't feel like he has that dominant performance, he's certainly going to look dominant on the stat sheet, and that's why you look, even when he was so frequently criticized last year, and people talked about the waning effort defensively and the fact that the Lakers weren't a winning team, first of all, I still think he was the best player on the planet, and I said that throughout that entire season, but he imposes his will on a game and just controls it where he's always going to be close to that 25-point triple-double. So, I don't see someone else capable of doing it. KD obviously hasn't done it. Maybe he has the skill set because he is that gifted facilitator who's also likely to outscore him and can get there on the boards. But I don't know. When I look out east, if Giannis were to get there, I guess he could be a contender. But LeBron is just that most consistent, all-around dominant offensive force. Yeah, it's never going to happen again. Hasn't happened before, won't happen again. There's a reason why it hasn't happened before. It's uh, it's truly rare air. All right, so 
like I said, we're looking ahead. Is LeBron James going to score? Is he going to take over? So let's get some official predictions, okay? We're going into game four. Let's right now assume that Bam Adebayo is not playing because that's the information that we have to work with at 9.53 p.m. Monday night before game four. Who wins? I'm going to take Lakers by probably double digits. I don't think it's a complete blowout, but I think even if Jimmy is great again, the probability is that AD is going to be better. LeBron is going to be out to send a message. And on the flip side of that, you could say, well, Hero and Robinson very well could be better, and that's true. And if the Heat have a signature shooting performance, which they haven't had in this series and haven't had really since they played the Bucs because they were pretty cool for the most part from deep against the Celtics as well, there's always that upside with them where they just shoot 45% from three and that can swing the result. But I'm going to put my faith in LeBron and AD. AD shot two free throws in this past game. That will not happen again. If things aren't working for him, he is just going to attack and get downhill. LeBron had eight turnovers, just looked a little bit out of sync and disengaged in this game. I don't think we see another performance like that from him. And maybe the Lakers shoot a little better from three too. I just think that so many factors came together for the Heat to win this game that even though there were some things that I really liked, I don't see them replicating it. And they've done a great job containing Duncan Robinson, something that we don't see yes. often. They have kept a totally. body on him every single minute of every possession. I think you might be the first person who tweeted that out that made me really keep an eye on it because he has had a body on him at all times. Same with Tyler Hero. They've been attacking both of them. I think this series goes to six games at, at this current rate. However... The game that the Miami Heat will win is not game four. I agree with you. Lakers come back out. All of this talk about LeBron staying locked in, staying focused. He's been here before. I mean, he's gone out and said, like, we are still confident in what we're able to do and who we are, and I 100% believe him. I don't think it's a double-digit victory. I think, you know, it's something where it's close in the first half. Lakers pull away in the third. Heat bring it back to make it an interesting fourth. Lakers close. So I'm rolling with the Lakers to win this one, same as I rolled with them to, to win this series. Uh, anything that you want to have the people look out for uh, in this game four on both sides, maybe something for the Lakers, something for the Heat that you would say is a key to win that they both need to implement? Well, I think it's part of what you just touched on. It's the Robinson Hero tandem finally getting going because Duncan Robinson has one of the simplest roles in basketball. Come off screens and be the best shooter on our team and almost always the best shooter on the floor. And he has struggled to fulfill that role at times throughout these playoffs, but particularly in this series, 25% from deep right now wasn't really getting many looks up at all because... As you said, there is just a body coming around those screens so hard right with him every time and he never gets a good look. And if then he has to take a dribble inside and be a decision maker, he doesn't exactly love that. So then we saw him start to force up some shots, which even for him were tough and those just weren't falling. So first off, I think that he needs to start getting good looks and he needs to start knocking them down. At the same time, the Lakers need to maintain that defensive intensity and stick on him at all times because we saw he got an open look in transition and he knocked it down. So it's not like his confidence is rocked to its core. He still knows that he's one of the best shooters in the planet. You need to continue to put pressure on him at all times. And same thing with Hero. Hero's better as a facilitator. He's a better shot maker off the dribble. But if you take away the easy stuff from three, you take away a lot of his effectiveness as a player. So I think those two guys are the thing that we've seen from the Heat where they haven't been at their best and 
that gives them another level still to go to because through games one and two, they weren't all that impressive. And a a large part of the reason for that was Hero and Robinson really struggled. 100%. And they are somebody that can turn the series if they just play to the absolute max. So I'll leave that off of my keys because, yeah, I'm not going to steal yours. I'll keep it interesting. I'll jump over to the Lakers real quick. You need to look at two things. One, what did Kyle Kuzma and Markeith Morris eat before Game 3? Make sure that they eat that again so that they can perform in the way that they did, like I said before, 19 points for Morris and 19 points for Kuzma, a plus 10 and a plus 6, respectively, on the night. But I'm looking at Danny Green. Hello, Mr. I-almost-won-a-finals MVP in the last decade. Uh, You need to step up, buddy. 0 for 6 from the field, 0 for 4 of 3, 2 from 2 for the free throw line, his only points of the game, a negative 15 on the night, three personal fouls and a turnover just to be the cherry on top. He needs to play at least 50% like he can play. Hit two threes out of your six instead of zero. Like, that is something that will incredibly open something up for the Lakers, especially if they just stick him in the corner because he's not going to get much defensive attention. He's probably going to have Duncan Robinson or Tyler Hero on him. And he needs to take advantage of that. And he needs to hit his threes. And he needs to go out there and actually make a difference. And then a key for the Miami Heat real quick. Jay Crowder. Draymond Green tweeted it out that, oh, he said it was like an embarrassment to basketball that Jay Crowder wasn't getting talked about as much. That's a little bit aggressive. (laughs) But he has been playing really, really well. And they need to continue to get, uh, you know, minutes and production out of him because he's somebody who did slump in those uh, conference finals, like you said, post Buck series where he was on fire, he really hasn't made that much of an impact. So you need him to go out there along with the guys that we mentioned before that are stepping in and really make an impact when you're on the court. But anything else you have to say about that? Yeah, Crowder is just so good and so solid right now. And defensively, what he's doing is incredible. Uh, looks quicker than I've ever seen him before, is always really strong and just tough to move. But the the key to me throughout these entire playoffs in this series has been what you just touched on with all of these guys, Kuzma, Morris, and Green. It's just the Lakers role players because Danny Green has been inexcusably bad. I thought that he would have been their third best player coming into the season, and he has not even come close to that. KCP has been, been better than him. KCP's also been bad in this series, though. So... Generally, they have gotten that quality performance from someone. Markeith has just been shooting the lights out throughout these playoffs. I think that Kuzma has the potential, if they do see more zone from the Heat, to be that creator off the dribble for himself. And I still think he has hero potential in an individual game because he's still clearly the third best shot maker on this team. And the other guy I look to, who I thought was the most pivotal player in this series before, is Rondo. Because we have gotten so much good Rondo. And last game... We got some bad Rondo, where it was, okay, I'm going to dictate everything. And I still think that his finishing around the rim has been unbelievable. And for the most part, his shooting has been great. But he had a rough shooting night, and he was still facilitating, of course. But he was facilitating in a way where it's, I'm going to dominate for this possession and dribble the ball for 20 seconds, and LeBron and AD are not going to touch it. And that's kind of how Rondo has generated assists throughout his career. He really dominates the ball, and it doesn't always come within the flow of the game. And that works for him in the 10 minutes where he's the one who's supposed to be running things. When LeBron is out there, though, there's no excuse. So I think we need to see what level does Rondo play at because he's getting big minutes. He's their primary ball handler in stretches no matter what. He needs to defer take smart shots, set up others, compete defensively, and knock down open threes. 
And throughout these playoffs, he's done a lot of those things at a really high level, but there's always been that fear for me because he was so bad throughout the regular season of, is this ever going to fall off a cliff? And if it does, he can potentially lose them a game because his role is that large and they have made him that important to this team. Yeah, it seems like the Lakers are kind of teetering on that edge with a lot of players. Players that go back and forth, back and forth. And just a few more notes before we move on from the finals, talk about a little NBA news to wrap up. Yet another incredibly fun edition of the ISO podcast. Dwight Howard worked his way into a starting role in the NBA Finals after making a huge impact in the conference finals against Nikola Jokic. But now we're 50 minutes into a podcast and haven't even mentioned his name. What does Dwight Howard need to do to help the Lakers win this series? Is it just not start anymore and have AD run the five? Is it be more involved? What does Dwight Howard need to do? Well, I think that we've seen stylistically this was not a favorable matchup for him. He's not going to be able to play those same heavy minutes. When he has been out there, he's still been a force on the glass, and that has been one of the Lakers' advantages in this series. The guy is just giving unbelievable effort right there, but he's never really been that dynamic pick-and-roll threat with the Lakers, and he can be. He can be unlocked as that because he is obviously athletic and he's giving this incredible effort, but when they have AD as an option as a role man, they're just going to go to him more often than not. So Dwight's offensive advantage hasn't been as great as it was versus the Nuggets when they were just trying to abuse Jokic because he couldn't challenge them vertically and going at him time and time again. And then also defensively, there's really nowhere to stick him because he's not good out on the perimeter and with Bam on the floor, obviously you want AD on him. And with Bam off the floor, you have shooters everywhere. And so you really can't play Dwight. So it's an incredible story from him. I did not expect to see him in this position. And obviously this is a job that a few other people could do. It doesn't require tremendous skill, but has required dog. And his athletic ability has been on full display. I just don't think, unfortunately for him, this series is when we're going to see his biggest stuff. I think that it's come in the past few rounds where he's really continued his overachievement through what was a fantastic season for him. Yeah, I think the story of Dwight has been written for this season. No matter what happens in the final, he's had his redemption arc. I don't know if you ever watched Avatar The Last Airbender, but it's almost like a Zuko-like uh, redemption arc where he's so, so low and then eventually somehow, some way, unlikely, finds himself as one of the heroes in the story, and that's what Dwight Howard has been for this Lakers team. Game four is tonight when you're listening to this on Tuesday morning. We'll see if the Lakers can take a 3-1 lead or if the Heat can tie things up and make it interesting. All right, one last bit of news before we wrap up this show. The Philadelphia 76ers have found their coach for, assumingly by them, the next five years in Doc Rivers. I've got some takes on this, but I'm interested to hear, what do you think? Was this the right move for the 76ers, who have had a lot of names tied to them recently, but swooped up Doc pretty quick once he hit the market? I think it's interesting, because Doc is right outside the top 10 NBA coaches of all time in my eyes. He is a tremendous culture setter and the kind of guy who gets star personalities to mesh and blend really well. And obviously the exception being this season, in which case he was disastrous in that role. And that's, I still think he was scapegoated, but maybe he wasn't the right fit for this Clippers team. When you look at the Sixers, part of it is the dynamic between Simmons and Embiid as far as personalities. But the biggest thing is just figuring out stylistically, how do those guys coexist? Because 
maybe it's running more pick and roll, even though they're both going downhill and people can predict it, but they still just can't quite stop it because I've seen enough games where Embiid is just content to sit out on the three-point line and huck up some shots from there and doesn't assert himself. He needed to be way better this season. He averaged 27 and 13 last year and just dropped off in all respects this year because it didn't seem like he cared. So for Doc, I think the responsibility falls First of all, on instilling that passion in these guys and that winning culture that hasn't been there, it seems, over these past couple years, obviously because they were in part losing for so long. And then also figure out that situation because Horford, we saw move to the bench. It was a disastrous signing in that respect. I think that Tobias Harris is still a guy who is sort of a spacing nightmare because he wants to take those mid-range pull-ups and operate out of the high post at times and doesn't want to be a floor spacer. Josh Richardson isn't a great pure shooter, so it's sort of a nightmarish situation that he's inheriting when you consider the talent that is also on that team. And so, to me, is Doc Rivers the schematic genius who I think of as I want to bring in? No, not necessarily. And I don't know if he helps them in that respect. So, I kind of have mixed feelings about it. I think he's a really good coach. I don't think that this is a situation in which you really need that guy who can say, here are our issues on the basketball court. We need to fix that right now or big changes coming in this organization. And when I look at Dwight's, uh, when I look at Doc's resume, he hasn't always been that guy. Doc Rivers is the most overrated coach in the NBA today. Wow. I'll say it again. Doc Rivers is the most overrated coach in the NBA today. I don't know if one championship has carried any coach farther than it's carried Doc Rivers. Because that Boston team is absolutely revered. And I don't think that he's a bad coach. Like, Doc Rivers is not a bad coach. But he is not somebody who, in my opinion, should be talked about as one of the best coaches in the league right now. Look at his track record since he's won that championship. You go to the Clippers. What happened to them? Playoff loss after playoff loss after disappointment after disappointment. Eventually, team got broken up. Whatever, right? And then, oh, a new era of the Clippers. Here comes Kawhi Leonard. Here comes Paul George. Everything's going to be different. Doc Rivers, the guy who can manage superstar talent, who can manage all this, wasn't able to manage it. So if I'm the 76ers and I see, okay, he can't manage Kawhi and Paul George, like he wasn't able to handle a ton of talent, as a team where my main problem has not been having the talent, but finding a way for them to play and to use them together, this coaching hire makes no sense. No sense. Like you said, he's not the schematic genius. And they've tied up five years in him. I say he he, he coaches a year or two in Philly. Year or two. Max, because look, he's not the type of person that you can just throw players and say work on the court. He was thrown an immaculate level of talent, incredible level of talent. And sure, the Clippers maybe weren't the closest team in the NBA and they only really had a strange year to to get together. But Kawhi Leonard won a championship with the Raptors. He was only there for a year and they had a first year head coach then. Right, And, of course, that head coach is Nick Nurse, who is the best coach in the NBA. But Doc Rivers, to me, is not the person that I am going to not only court, but aggressively go after if I'm a team that looks at Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris, and thinks these are three really young, talented guys that we haven't been able to work together. Who are we going to bring in? 
the guy who just couldn't make talent work together. Maybe they think that he can get Tobias back to his Clipper days. I doubt that. Uh, but to me, I saw this and I was disappointed. I think they could have done better than, than Doc Rivers. He's a good coach, but he's not a great coach, especially right now. I actually understand a lot of where you're coming from, and I think that your specific criticism of his fit with the Sixers makes sense because he's probably not fulfilling what they need the most. I do think, though, you're underselling his resume because the guy's been coaching 21 years and has three losing records over that time. And one of the great abilities that he does have is raising the ceiling of really what should be mediocre teams. Obviously, you look at last year's Clippers team winning 48 games and taking two off of the Warriors in the playoffs with that ragtag squad. You go back to his first ever job in Orlando where he took some miserable teams to the playoffs. And of course, that was in the East at its absolute lowest, but it's still really impressive. And I don't think that and ability he had Tracy has ever gone McGrady away. scoring buckets and buckets and buckets and buckets and buckets as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then again, of course, that isn't the situation he's in right now. He is in a situation where he needs to get these star personalities to blend and he needs to get them to work together on the court. And it is honestly an almost impossible task because how you navigate having two non-shooters as your best players in the modern NBA is exceedingly difficult. And part of this responsibility is going to fall on Elton Brand as far as what pieces he puts around them because they need to have elite shooters around them. The fact that they haven't is ridiculous. Just look at Ben Simmons' rookie year where the Sixers were essentially an average team. Then they just added Bellinelli and Ilyasova, and all of a sudden they were one of the best teams out East because they had that superb shooting. And the fact that they haven't supplemented that in these next couple seasons is ridiculous. So part of that falls on Elton Brand, part of that falls on Doc, and I'm not going to do a whole Sixers organizational thing here, but I do think that it extends We beyond- might in the offseason. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. I do think it extends beyond what one coach can do because there's this fundamental- flaw with having those two guys as your best players unless of course they dramatically change or improve their skill set so maybe Doc isn't a home run maybe you're right in that respect and the one or two years take is interesting just because tension is so high in Philly that people are going to be willing to pull those triggers and say okay this isn't working you're gone clearly because there's a lot of pressure on them to get their two young superstars to work together and in that respect maybe that is on the table but I still think he's in the history of basketball, a great coach who has done some incredible things. But I understand where you're coming from right now as well, because he's not that schematic genius who's going to just magically make things work here in Philly. Look, he's, he's okay, undeniably a lot of regular season success. And if I'm a team who is looking to make a jump in regular season wins, if I'm the Chicago Bulls, by if I'm looking for a coach on the Chicago Bulls and I haven't hired Billy Donovan yet, Doc Rivers is the kind of guy I'd go for. Somebody who is respected. I will never take that away from him. He is one of the most well-respected coaches in the NBA. It's undeniable. He can give you that regular season jump in wins, which has its value. But I'm looking at playoff records. I mean, it was kind of glaring when they went into Game 7 against Denver. It was that Doc Rivers has a terrible record in Game 7s, and he has playoff success. And I'm again, I'm not saying he's the worst coach in NBA history, but right now he's the most overrated because I think that the league has outgrown Doc. I think you need to be more aware of the X's and O's of things. Somebody with maybe Doc's skill set, if he were to come into the NBA today, would be well-suited as an assistant coach. Somebody who is there to bring guys together, understands how to like build a team, everything like that, but I don't want him calling the plays. 
at the end of all being in charge of what's going on on my basketball court. Because look at the last couple of years with the Clippers. He was fired as his job with the GM. Part of the reason why he was fired this year was not wanting to invest in his youth and things of that nature, not wanting to get a guy like Michael Porter Jr. And then, of course, the on-court product as well. That's a triple whammy to me. And if I'm Philly, those are three things that I'm trying to do, maybe besides developing young talent, but also with their inability to get shooting and so much money tied up in guys like Tobias Harris and Al Horford, which will be contracts that are really hard to move, you have to hit whatever draft picks you have. And Doc is not the kind of guy that I would want scouting that right now and making part of the decision. He's not the GM there, but he's the head coach. He has say in who he wants on his team, especially because he's a new head coach, and they're going to try to shift the personnel to fit his regime in the first year so that they can have as little excuses as possible because Philly, like you said, is an interesting case, and we won't go super deep into it, but they haven't just been in the spotlight since they've been good. They've been in the spotlight since they were tanking because they were the process, so this is about a almost a decade-long buildup right now in Philly, and I think they made the wrong move, and Doc Rivers is not the right man for uh, for a team like that. Any final remarks on Doc Rivers uh, before we move on and end this episode? I just want to ask you, when you look at this market, because there's an abundance of coaches who are out there right now, who would you have taken over, Doc? I would have taken Nate McMillan. Uh, to me, I think that just the situation in Indiana was, was unfortunate for him this year. Uh, I think he is a really, really, really good coach and wherever he goes is going to get good. And he's somebody that I think could work with that talent. Kenny Atkinson, uh, is somebody who I'm really high on. And if I'm the Sixers, I would take a little bit more of a bet on him than I would somebody like doc. Like to me, it just, it just doesn't seem like he's the best fit. Is he a better coach than some people? I would argue no. I see why you would argue yes. But I I would, again, I'm not shooting myself because I have Doc Rivers as my coach, right? Like, he's fine. He's somebody that, again, you'll be looked at, you'll be respected. It's fine to have him as an organization if he's one of your options. I would have picked Antonio over him. That's a name that just came to mind that, that was slipping earlier. I knew that there was somebody else. Just for this scheme, for this team, for what I want for it, those three guys, maybe more if I sat down, maybe even a Ty Lue, uh, who does have a championship more recently and worked with star players to make that fit. So those are just guys that... I would have above Doc if I'm Philly right now. But look, having Doc Rivers as your coach in the NBA, you're never going to get made fun of. Like, you're you're going to be fine. You don't have uh, Earl Watson. You know, you don't have Igor Kokoshkov. You have Doc Rivers. Here's what I think you're underselling is just Doc commands a different level of respect. And there's a reason that they got Kenny Atkinson out of Brooklyn because they didn't see him as that kind of guy who would take them to the championship level. And McMillan, I think... Is a quality coach. I think that he did a good job in a difficult situation here, really rolling with the Brogdon Sabonis pick and roll as their primary offense. He probably didn't expect that. At the same time, he's not that kind of schematic innovator that you have in a guy like D'Antoni. And maybe D'Antoni would be good there. At the same time, when it comes to managing young personalities who have these championship aspirations and are going to look to a guy who has done it before, I think that that carries a lot of weight with Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. So I don't think it's a perfect solution. I also think Nate McMillan is not the guy to take them to that level. Kenny Atkinson isn't the guy to take them. I mean, Kenny Atkinson has his tremendous strengths, and I don't want to write him off as the guy who gets you close and then someone else puts you over the top, but player development is 
was his greatest asset and making something out of nothing and establishing that culture for a scrappy team. And then when it came Both to the big ben boys... Both Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid need to develop as players if they're going to win a championship. My point is just, they are going to look at Doc Rivers, who they have seen on TV since they were kids, especially in Ben Simmons' case. I don't know what Joel Embiid was watching in Cameroon. And who they have seen as this authority figure throughout the league. There's a different level of respect. And even though these guys are stars, and Joel Embiid is 26 years old or whatever, he's young... They are still impressionable, and they are desperate to win right now, and I do think that Doc helps them there, and maybe that's a veneer, and that's the kind of thing that can be exposed, and maybe it's not sustainable because he isn't the basketball mind that takes them over the top, but I think that having that influential figure at the top, you cannot replicate with anyone else in basketball right now because Ty Lue is a figurehead. He was the kind of guy who LeBron implanted, as he has done with so many, to say, let me dictate my will. And I just don't think there's a comparison right now unless it's Dan Tony. Look, okay, so Dan Tony was one slip of mine. He would be a number one. I would still take those other guys over them just because, again, I, also, look, Doc Rivers, I, I feel like, look, he is a well respected person. I'm not sure if he's the most well respected by these up and coming superstars. Like, this Clippers team did not look like they wanted to be out there and wanted to play in game seven. The, and usually, if a team loves their coach and is behind their coach, like they play with that extra level. That's what I look at. Like, when I look at the Raptors, right? That extra level of heart, that extra level of oomph that they put in there, part of that I attribute to, do they like the person that's calling the plays? Do they want that person to keep their job, right? Like, that's just an extra something to fight for. And from what we saw in Los Angeles, for the last couple of years, again, things have not been working out that great for the last seven years for Doc. He's had good success, but again, if you're looking at it big picture, which we need to when we're evaluating good teams, which Doc is always the coach of the good team, you have to look at playoff success and championship success. He has minimal or zero in those categories. And the most recent example, he had a team with somebody who was top three MVP and the finals MVP last year, and a team with two six-man-of-the-year candidates, one current six-man-of-the-year, and uh, a Morris, a Morris twin, and just so much raw talent, and they didn't seem to respect him. So I think just automatically assuming that the star players in Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid would respect him, I'm not sure. Everybody else will respect him, yes. You'll get respect from the media, because he treats the media great. You'll get respect from the GMs, from the fans. But that one place it might be lacking are star players, and that's what the Sixers have. First of all, I think that calling a guy who has 91 career playoff wins and a title and another finals appearance under his belt as having min minimal playoff success is it last seven years last last seven years yes he's had look he but I'm judging him on a I'm not judging him as a bad coach I'm judging him as this great coach and top whatever all time that people are talking but then to. why are and we the reality taking is Nate McMillan and Kenny Atkinson over him because realistically they are not at that level and I also think that when you look at the talent on this team maybe part of it is on Doc's shoulders as far as establishing that culture, but in Paul George, he had a guy who didn't step up to the biggest moments, who didn't assert himself as that star top 10 level guy that we thought he was. Montrez Harrell sucked throughout these playoffs, and he was exposed as a liability because the value of his sheer effort... And he played him the entire time. He only played 19 minutes a Don't game against the then. Nuggets. I think that Doc was willing to adjust there, probably played Lou Williams too much because he was so clearly just getting cooked defensively, but he also probably didn't expect Lou, who was this 20-plus point-per-game score for him, to all of a sudden fall off a cliff to where he's not just that liability defensively, he's also brutal offensively, scoring 10 a game against the Nuggets on 15% from deep. And so, to me, Doc Rivers was a scapegoat. 
He was the guy who they could point at and say, okay, well, we just traded all this for Paul George, so we're certainly not sending him out the door. Hey, Kawhi, who else can we get out to make it look like we're making some substantive change? And Doc was that guy. I don't think this burden falls on him. I think that in LA, he had a team that sometimes we oversell as far as what their expectations should have been when you go to the Lob City Clippers because DeAndre Jordan, to me, was perennially overrated and... CP3 and Blake at their absolute peaks were fantastic. They were also incredibly unlucky as far as untimely injuries. And I just think when we look at what the Clippers did last year, winning 48 games, winning a couple playoff games with that roster, there are very few coaches in basketball who can do that. Very, very, very few. So I don't think he's an X's and O's genius, but I also think he's a really good basketball coach and his resume speaks for himself in that respect. Yes, he's had some really good rosters throughout his career. He's also done a lot with some bad rosters. And in fact, almost every time we've seen him with a mediocre roster, they have somehow managed to still make the playoffs or go above 500. And that is an incredible accomplishment. Yeah, and like, like, like I said, if I'm the Chicago Bulls, Doc Rivers is somebody I look for. But if I'm a team looking to win a championship, Doc Rivers is not exactly the guy I'm looking for. And I'm not saying those other guys are guaranteed bets. But at the same time, you have to look at what's happened in the past and make decisions off of that. And the championship success was a decade ago at this point. It's a modern NBA. It's a different game. And from what we've seen, you can make the playoffs, but that's not enough for the Sixers. Because that's what they've been doing. They can't, unless Doc can take that leap from basic to regular, from regular to great, which we haven't seen him do with, with teams in the last seven years, I'm not sure that he's the guy that you would go for. And I personally would rather take a bet on one of these coaches that, in my opinion, shouldn't even be on the coaching market. I think both Atkinson and uh, McMillan were wrongfully fired from their positions and were in really, really bad spots. That were pretty unfair for coaches. Again, I think D'Antoni would still be a better pick no matter what uh, you're trying to do. But yeah, I, it, it just didn't make sense to me. It's probably just something we won't see eye to eye on. It's just something with Doc Rivers that in the last couple of months I've just been looking at. And it's like, I want to say that he's one of the best coaches in the NBA. But I, I just can't at this point. Like, if you want to talk about historically and place there, that to me is completely different than what we're talking about right now. Because I'm talking about the right now. And he's the one of the most overrated coaches right I now. I guess that depends on where you put him. Because I don't see him as being close in value to a Nurse or a Spolstra or a Stevens or even a D'Antoni. But I do think he's in that very next tier. And, I mean, he's easily a top 10 coach in basketball still, in my opinion. I'd have to think about it. I haven't gone down and and, and wrote down my list of coaches and things this like that. This is why I, I, I don't want to just give an opinion. Eric. I have a list for everything. I don't have to think. I already know. Sorry, I don't have a list for like top people that I like throwing hard passes to the role man at 9.30 in the second quarter and Wednesday night games. Situational uh, basketball, baby. You got to know that. Tell you what, next episode, I'll come with top 10 coaches, and I'm a man of my word. I, I think he'll be in my top 10, but I don't think he'll be top All 7. Right. We'll see. So that's that's where I would think I would have him around off the top of my head. I don't want to give like a hard take without researching it, despite what it may seem from literally everything else <laughs> I say. Sometimes I like to know what I'm talking about. 
that'll do it. That's a fun note to wrap it up. Always kind of fun when Carson and I get a little feisty because usually we, we agree on a good amount of things. So it's, it's nice to, to have that disagreement every once in a while. I'll be back with my list of top 10 coaches. Carson will have that top 10 list that I named with eight different names uh, a little bit earlier. Like I said before, you can follow us on Twitter at Eric Ruby underscore for myself at Carsobi for Carson, especially follow him because he does like 18 different shows. I actually don't know how he has time to do this show, but he does 18 different shows. They're all really, really, really good. So they're all worth your time. Go and check those out at Carsobi on Twitter. A like, a follow, a subscribe, a five-star rating, a simple like, retweet, whatever it is, would be greatly appreciated. And until next time, enjoy basketball, enjoy the finals, enjoy LeBron, Jimmy Butler, everything like that. It'll be over soon. We'll see you guys next week.